Welcome to a Break in the Action podcast. Here we'll take a break from the tactical and spend our time on the traditional, the Break Action double-barreled shotgun. Join us each week for discussion and interviews centered around vintage and modern shotguns, outdoor pursuits, and sporting literature. So sit back and relax as we take a break in the action. Here's your host, shotgun collector, wing shooter, and sporting clays enthusiast, Ryan Dowdy. My guest today is Silvio Calavi. Silvio has served as the editor-in-chief of both Shooting Sportsman and Fly Rod and Reel magazines. He has also written extensively on fine guns and shooting, hunting, fly fishing, and sporting travel. While we could easily build a podcast around most of his writing, one piece in particular really stands out to me. Silvio co-authored the book Hemingway's Guns in 2010. The book takes a detailed look at many of the rifles, shotguns, and pistols that Ernest Hemingway is known to have owned throughout his life. While most of Hemingway's life was complex and contradictory, his affinity for hunting and appreciation for guns he used was a constant throughout his life. Silvio, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet. You bet. I've really been excited to speak to you. Um, Let me first congratulate you on Hemingway's Guns. It's really a fantastic book. I couldn't put it down once I started it. I actually actually finished it in one sitting. What was your inspiration for the book? Well, that was actually pretty easy. Uh, about ten years ago, I was still uh, deep in a corporate uh, in a corporate job, and um, one evening I was commuting. I had to spend most of my my work weeks, you know, living in a little hotel a couple hundred miles away near, near Boston. And uh, I come home at the end of the week pretty well fried. Um, so one weekend I was sitting at the uh, at the counter up in our kitchen and the phone rang. And it was a woman calling from Israel. She was, her name was Miriam Mandel. And she was a professor, of, she is a professor of American literature at the university in Tel Aviv, and she is a Hemingway scholar. And she was putting together a book, an academic book about Ernest Hemingway and his African writings, two books and two um, short stories. And she had a number of her peers in the Hemingway world writing critical essays about um, Hemingway's work, but she realized that she, her book needed some context about Africa and about safari, and that included, you know, why was Ernest Hemingway going to Africa on safari? What sort of trophies was he looking for? Um, what sort of guns was he using? Who was he doing this with? What was the, you know, what was the, the, the cultural context of going on safari in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on? And she'd been looking all over the world for somebody who might be able to answer these questions. And, um, she finally got a hold of a woman in California named Diana Rupp, who happens to be the editor of Sports Field magazine. So <clears throat> they were talking woman to woman, you know, two women in an unusual field. And um, 
Miriam put the question to Diana, and Diana said, oh, my gosh, you've got to talk to this guy in Maine, who, and gave her my name and uh, telephone number. Miriam called me out of the blue, and uh, we chatted for about 40 minutes. I put the phone down, and my wife turned to me. She heard the whole conversation, and she said, did I hear you right? Did you just agree to write a 10,000-word essay for someone for nothing? And I, I got a little defensive, and I said, look, work is really killing me. Uh, this whole thing sounded really fun. I figure it's going to be stress relief, and who knows where this could lead. Yeah. Well, that was 11, 12 years ago, and here's where it's led. You and I are having a conversation about this. Right. And right. in the meantime, you know, I'm always, I, I always think of that old joke, you know, it was about becoming an editor, but it was, you know, I, I, I expressed it as uh, yesterday I, I couldn't spell a Hemingway authority and today I are one. <laughs> well, so anyone who's familiar with Hemingway's writing knows that he, he really took a lot of care to describe the guns um, in his stories to his readers. Guns also seem to have played a huge part um, in his in his personal life from early on. What did he look for personally in his guns? Was was he a collector or? Yeah, he he was not a collector the way you and I might think of it. You know, somebody who who goes out and finds um, a particular maker or a particular engraver or a particular caliber or bore size. Uh, and I think it's he, he was a user and an appreciator of guns, but they weren't wall hangers to him, much less investments. And and you have to remember that he was. He was born in 1899 and died in 1961. And in that period, in America in particular, guns and hunting were just simply, they, they were such a matter of daily course that nobody gave them really much of a thought. You know, that the, our culture has changed uh, dramatically concerning guns and hunting since then. But it in the Hemingway family, however, there was a, a, a bit of a darker undercurrent to go with guns as well, and that is that um, his father and grandfather both committed suicide with guns. Mm. And then, of course, you know, in 1961, Hemingway did that himself, and right. uh, there have been other members of his family who've done that uh, uh, since. Um but I don't. I don't know that that colored his appreciation for, or you know, or use of guns at all. He, he was a hunter, and um, in those days, going on safari, for instance, to Africa was regarded as a oh, you know, a mark of uh, of, of achievement. Something that that people, particularly men, uh, aspired to. It was in some ways the climax of a. Of a, of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Did did he gravitate towards um, expensive guns or or custom guns? He 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 had some very expensive guns, but of course he started making pretty serious money from about the age of thirty on, and um, he ne he he rarely bought expensive guns brand new. He he would spend, for example, in nineteen what it was forty five or so, he spent fifteen hundred dollars on a pair of Kriegoff over and unders 
that he found at um, Abercrombie and Fitch when it, when he was on his way home from covering uh, World War II. Uh, they'd been made for someone else, <coughs> consigned to Abercrombie's, and um, Hemingway found them there, and they, they more or less fit him, and he had money in his pocket, and this was a way to uh, help transition from from the war to civilian life, and he grabbed them. But he, <coughs> as I say, he didn't grab them because they were expensive. He grabbed them because they were very high-quality guns, and they were shotguns, and he was he was a Although he hunted with a rifle a great deal, he was, I think, first and foremost a shotgun man. Hmm. The book really seems to be equal parts a biography of his life and then a breakdown of your detective work and, and a mini encyclopedia of the guns uh, mentioned. How did you go about researching the guns that he had or was thought to have had? Well, after I got done with the work for Miriam Mandel's Africa book, I realized that this there was so much more to this story than uh, was required for the Africa book that I just couldn't really stop. Um, and by then, I had a pretty good idea of of what he had in his Africa battery. And that, and and of course, you know, you look at a particular type of gun and or rifle, and you think, well, how did he? What led him to choose this? And then you take a back bearing on it. And and you you fought, and the next the next thing you know you're you're digging into his childhood, but the research involved reading most or a great deal of his writing for references to hunting or guns, and by guns I mean shotguns, rifles, handguns, even you know in his military writings, um, uh, military rifles or submachine guns, that sort of thing, uh, and then. Um, with those references in hand, going to, for instance, uh, the Hemingway collection at the JFK Presidential Library in Boston and looking for photographs of those guns or him holding those guns. Um, and at the same time, reading every biography of Ernest Hemingway that I could lay my hands on to see whether they, his biographers could verify certain things that he wrote about in his, in his own writings. And one of the things you learn about Ernest Hemingway very quickly is um, that he was, shall we say, a good storyteller. Um, you know, he, he liked to say that he, he could make the truth truer than it really was, which I take to mean he, he knew how to embellish a story to, uh, to the, you know, to, to give it the, uh, the, the best possible polish. Right. And he had a bit of an ego. He liked, you know, he he um, he liked to think of himself as a dead shot and a uh, and a very successful hunter. Um, who doesn't? Sometimes he was, and sometimes he wasn't. You know, but by by taking by correlating his, or I should say, by triangulating his stories in a number of different ways, whether it was from photographs in the archive or mentions by his biographers or even things like sales slips from Abercrombie and Fitch, you could pretty well zero in on what the, the truth of a particular situation uh, happened to be. Yeah. He seemed to have had a personal connection with his guns. Um, he, he gifted and gave away uh, many of those to friends and, and, and wives. And Yeah, there was a, 
there was a good bit of horse tra- trading going on, and he was a generous and impulsive and 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 wealthy guy. Um, if you were a friend of his and you made a fuss over a particular gun, for example, he might just give it to you and then go out and replace it with something else. Um, and I think as as people like that do, as I said, there was some horse trading, you know, hey, that's really nice. Um, what will you take for it? Oh, I really like your whatever. You know, let's let's just swap that kind of thing. Yep. So did that make your detective work more difficult? Well, yeah, uh, difficult and or interesting. Uh, and just I, I, this is true for any sort of research, um, but just about when you think you've got something figured out and nailed down, then you come across something that indicates that you're nowhere near, you know, you're nowhere close. The story goes this direction or that direction, you know. Uh, but we really began to enjoy the, uh, the, the the pursuit in and of itself. Oh, I should mention my two co-authors, Steve Helsley and Roger Sanger. They're they're you know they're old, old and very good friends of mine, and um, we've done a number of projects together over the years, having to do with guns and hunting and shooting. Um, but I I kept. I kept them informed on the whole Hemingway project. And finally, they got so interested in it as well that they said, look, we'd love to get involved in this with you. Could, we could, we could help out with the research. How would that be? And I said, oh, that would be wonderful. You know, welcome aboard. So that's how they came up. Yeah. In, in regards to his shotguns, do you get the sense that he had a, um, a favorite? Was there like a, a make or a model that you feel he was especially partial to? That's that's a good question. Um, I would say he had two favorites, but the one that I would guess that he pumped the most rounds through over his lifetime was uh, in, <clears throat> the Winchester Model 12. In fact, the pump gun. Uh, he had he had several of them, but there was one in particular that he almost wore out, which is not an easy thing to do, uh, and. Uh, he, he had, he had model 12s for just about all his life. Uh, I think he appreciated their, their function. You know, their, um, it's still known today as the, the finest pump gun ever made. They handled pretty well considering it was a, you know, an industrial gun. Uh, and, um, his son Patrick told me once that particularly in, um, in kind of elite company, his father took a, uh, some perverse pleasure in trotting out a, you know, a, a fence post grade model 12 when everybody around him was carrying handmade European doubles. Uh, and then the, the icing on the cake for him, particularly when he was young, of course, was that if he could go ahead and, and outshoot these people with his fence post grade model 12, uh, his other, his other favorite and, um, I'm basing this on the number of photos of him with it uh, and the fact that he finally killed himself with it was his um, English WNC Scott uh, double-barrel 12-gauge pigeon gun. Uh, he, bought it, he bought it secondhand in northern Italy in the late 40s, uh, and then it seemed to have been part of his life thereafter yeah yeah that was a really interesting part of your book there's been some question as to what specific gun he ended his life with 
Um, walk us through that that part of the story. Yeah, um, Hemingway's death was 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 a shock to the literary world, and 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 even uh, you know the the, enter- the entertainment world because he, you know, he was known as as in the movie business, um, in the magazine business, as well as in the the literary business, and. I've I've seen headlines from that day in 1961 that referred to his his suicide as the shot heard around the world. Hmm. Um, so it's a little surprising that that there wasn't more known ab- about some of the details of, of his suicide. And I don't know if it's still true, but if you Google Ernest Hemingway, you'll see that um, whoever wrote that bio claimed that he killed himself with an English boss shotgun. In Russia, the rumor has it that he used a Bernardelli. Um, There's a number of other uh, rumors like that as well. And I went back and read every contemporary account and obituary and so on that I could find, and there was considerable um, confusion about it. And of course, the general media writing about guns usually gets stuff wrong anyway. Yeah. Then we went to the to the police in in Idaho, and it turned out that there was for for some reason the police report of his suicide was had, I think it had been, it had been destroyed anyway. It wasn't available. Um, and Roger Sanger, my my friend and co-author. Meanwhile, was retiring to Sun Valley. And one day, purely by chance, he happened to mention this, uh, this issue of the suicide gun. And of course, the Hemingway family had moved to, to catch him to a friend. And the friend who had lived there for many years sat up at the coffee counter and said, uh, Oh, you know, there's some pieces of that gun still around. Oh, wow. Well, Roger almost spilled his coffee and said, You got to tell me more. Well, to to telescope the story a little bit, um, after Hemingway's suicide, the family did not want that gun to become a, uh, a curiosity. So they called in a local welder, handed him the gun, and said, look, we want you to cut this thing up into scrap and then get rid of the scraps. We want it destroyed so that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands, uh, which he proceeded to do. Well, many years later, when Roger is sitting at the coffee counter at the diner in uh, in Sun Valley talking to this fellow, it turns out that um, the grandson of the welder who had cut up the gun was still there and still operating the same welding shop. And when Roger tracked him down, the man said, Oh yeah. Would you like to see the pieces of this gun? Oh, and it man. turned out that his grandpa couldn't, you know, couldn't bring himself to to throw away every last scrap of this gun and kept five little pieces. If I remember right, it was three chunks of metal and two pieces of stock wood. And they were so small that his grandson was keeping them in a little in a matchbox. Wow. So he handed the matchbox over to Roger, very trusting guy. Roger um, shared them with me and Steve. We photographed them. We examined them. We we showed them to friends of ours who came up out of the English gun trade. 
And with their help, we were able to identify them with 99.9% certainty as a WNC Scott Monte Carlo grade B pigeon gun, which mm. was exactly what Hemingway owned. Uh, <clears throat> this, this, as you say, this, this kind of evolved into a CSI sort of, um, sort of, uh, investigation, but, <clears throat> You know, it was like like all these investigations. It was a little bit of good luck and a little and a lot of of of, of digging and and research. Um, so we were, as I say, we were ninety nine point nine percent certain that it had to have been Ernest Scott Pigeon Gun. And then years later, we we wound up at the Hemingway home in Cuba, and we know <clears throat> so we we had been through two of Hemingway's homes in Cuba and in Idaho, and there were a number of his guns there, but the Scott was conspicuous by its absence. Mm. So if it isn't there, where is it? Well, maybe it's been cut up. All right. So where were these pieces buried? Could we go and look for them? <laughs> and it turned out that. Uh, the owner's grandfather had taken the Hemingway family family's instructions literally and taken them out into the middle of nowhere and dug a hole in the ground with a shovel and buried them, filled the hole up, and walked away. Well, 50 years or whatever it was later, <clears throat> that piece of ground <laughs> had, a, it had a home built on it. So there was no there was no digging these pieces up and and uh, you know and to find more of them. And it, it's kind of interesting that uh, the home belonged to uh, Adam West, who was TV's you know, Batman on TV. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's great, and and that's a perfect example of why this book is so interesting. We have really only touched on the shotgun aspect. But it's filled with chapters on all varieties of guns, rifles and pistols and shotguns, and it is just a fantastic um, read. Silvio, what other projects do you have in the works right now? Well, um, the Hemingway thing has never has never receded. You know, the, the the there's still a tremendous amount of interest in Ernest Hemingway as an author and as a celebrity and as a man um he, he, he's like elvis you know his estate makes more money than he did when he was alive and he made plenty of money um he, he's still and he's an enduring celebrity and just about everything that he was interested in interests pe other people today um so I'm waiting right now for the fifth edition of the Hemingway letters project to be published. The, the Letters Project um, has been collating and collecting all his correspondence through whatever is available through his life, and then putting them in chronological order in a book and annotating them and explaining, you know, what is in the letters and to whom the letters were written and, and you know, the context and the meaning. And the reason I'm waiting for volume five, which is going to the printers now, is because this spans the year of his first African safari in 1932-33. Um, so I, I'm very curious to see 
his le- the letters that he wrote to his friends and family about the safari, both in the preparation before going on safari and the reporting, you know, while he was at Africa and so on, to see what further information, you know, we might glean about uh, the guns he had with him, uh, the hunting, the trophies, and things like that. We know that he had many more guns with him that, than than we know of specifically. In fact, I've even <clears throat> I've tried to get to the Kenya police to see whether I could get into their archives to look at the Heming at Hemingway's um, firearms permits for his two safaris, and so far I haven't been able to, uh, uh, to to accomplish this. So, depending on what we find there, there may or may not be you know another chapter to the Hemingway's gun story. But in the meantime, I'm talking with a um, another publisher about something similar involving Theodore Roosevelt, Mm. Teddy Roosevelt's guns. Here's another famous American who did, um, who was a committed hunter and shooter and, 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 and gun aficionado. Yeah. So we'll see what comes of that. Yep. I love that. Well, I'll, I'll certainly be on the lookout for that one. Silvio, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate, uh, you, you coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Ryan. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And um, it really is a compelling story. And I've, I've found that even people who have little or no interest in guns or shooting enjoy the book because it shows them a side of, of, of Ernest Hemingway that um, maybe they weren't aware of before. Silvio warned me up front that digging into even a few of the many Model 21s, several Browning Superposed or Merkels, the Darn, the Beretta SO3, Krigoffs, or the Sidelock Ariza Balaga would stretch our conversation to well over an hour. So I would encourage anyone curious to pick up the second edition of Hemingway's Guns by Silvio Calabi, Steve Helsley, and Roger Sanger. Thank you for taking some time to listen to this episode. We're really just getting started here, but I do hope that you're finding the shotgun-focused content interesting. If you do, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of A Break in the Action and encourage you to subscribe. Want to hear your voice on a future episode of A Break in the Action? Leave a message, ask a question, or suggest a topic on our listener line at 317-489-0103. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram for more information, discussion, and photos. If you would like to reach Ryan directly, email him at abreakintheaction at gmail.com.